Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Pretty dress up clothes to wear Bright bows, cute are just a part of her story. That is uh, In His Way by Jimmy Green. <laughs> the last time I played this song on the air, I started crying and I didn't stop for about half an hour. I'm going to try to keep that from happening again. And you hear the voice of Kurt Elling. Um, I should just a word about the music on today's show. Uh, all the music that we use to get in and out of segments will be music that was created and performed specifically to commemorate uh, the Sandy Hook shootings. Uh, and Jimmy Green, of course, the, the parent of Anna Grace. Uh, his wife, Nelva, has also been on this show. Uh, a little bit later, you'll hear Into the Silent Land by Steve Danu, who grew up in uh, Newtown and wrote an orchestral piece. Um another of Jimmy's pieces and then at the end you'll hear actually the children some of the children from a Newtown school choir singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow so before I introduce our guest who has written uh, an amazing book and I I think I'll be surprised if in this year if in 2022 uh, I read a more necessary book Um, but before I introduce her I just want to just quickly Say, just to tell a, a personal thing, which, um, and I'll do it as expeditiously as I possibly can. So, uh, in 2001, 9-11 happened. I had a kind of different job uh, that involved me staying on the air for a long time, days and days and days and days with extra hours, long-form coverage, and, and it really got in my head at a certain point. And then in 2012, uh, when the Sandy Hook shootings started, when the news started to trickle out about the Sandy Hook shootings, we once again here went into long-form coverage. John Dankosky and I were anchoring for, again, days and days. We eventually went down to Newtown and did shows from there. We do a daily show. I don't think we did a show about anything else for two weeks. Um, But I remember that getting in my head too, obviously. Uh, And then a short time later... Uh, the following year, uh, on a day very much like this one, the Boston Marathon happened, the terrible bombing happened, and I remember we went into long-form coverage again, uh, but we were cutting back and forth with, I guess, WBUR or GBH, and during the cutaways, I would just run over to my office and try to find out just online if I could get any greater sense of what happened, and I remember that involved kind of stumbling across a couple of pictures of mutilation that were pictures that I didn't really want to see. And I stepped out in the hall and I froze. I've never had this happen in my life before or since. I froze in the hall and I just couldn't quite get myself moving again to get back into the studio. And I had had a PTSD episode. I mean, there's just kind of no question about that. And I think we live with that stuff these days. Um, Sandy Hook in particular, though, I think was 
where a lot of the PTSD started. I mean, I, I knew Jimmy Green when he was about 16 years old. I met him for the first time. John uh, Dankowski knew him much better. Um, I've talked to other parents since then. I also knew Daniel Malloy, the governor of Connecticut at the time, very well. I knew his chief of staff, Roy Elkio Grosso, who was in the room with Malloy uh, when he realized he was going to have to tell the parents uh, that, and, and, and the other loved ones from Sandy Hook that their, their family members were dead. So this isn't an abstraction. <laughs> you know, it just isn't. It never can be. Uh, and uh, I just say that to begin to highlight the value uh, of this book by Elizabeth Williamson, a feature writer for The New York Times and the author of Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. Elizabeth Williamson, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be with you. And in, in, I'm just going to begin by pointing out a few things. Okay, so there's another Boston Marathon today. There's also... A few mass shootings over the weekend, two in South Carolina, one in Pennsylvania, in Pittsburgh. Um, meanwhile, Alex Jones, who we'll be talking a lot about today, has filed for uh, Chapter 11 bankruptcy. Um, and uh, as if on cue, uh, Mark Crispin Miller, formerly uh, a fairly well-regarded media studies professor at NYU, still at NYU, um, on his Substack letter, uh, wrote uh, the piece's headline, Some Reasons to Suspect that the Subway Shooting uh, Didn't Really Happen. Um, yeah. And, and he, he goes on from there to say, you know, we've been fed so much stuff in, over the last two years from the, quote, coronavirus, unquote, to set up, set to wipe out millions of us to the, quote, insurrection uh, in the capital, to the many fake atrocities committed not by the Russians in Ukraine. Um, Marcus Miller now becomes sort of a supermarket for this kind of stuff. But it makes me think, I mean, you've done such wonderful work writing about these two tragedies, uh, the first one being the deaths of 26 people, 20 of them children, and then the second set of tragedies, this is the abuse and tormenting uh, of the survivors, the loved ones, by people who genuinely, in, in most cases, seem to believe that they never happened. And I don't know, just reading those things to you, it must seem more like we're on a merry-go-round than a roller coaster. A roller coaster has a beginning and an end. I feel like we're on a ride that just goes around and around and around. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, Colin. You mentioned the the Mark Crispin Miller post. Um, This is something that I noticed these conspiracy theorists bringing up more and more. They're using the sheer amount of mis- and disinformation in the environment as kind of an excuse to spread more. It's a really disturbing kind of circular um, argument that they're extending, that there's so much misinformation that how do we know that anything is true? Right. And that is very much the kind of epistemic crisis that we're in and that you document so well in the book. So this is this book has so much in it, and, and it's a challenge to talk about it over the course of, of even our full show. I'm going to start in a weird way. Uh, I'm going to start with a kind of a kind of a micro incident in your book, and and kind of unpack it outward with you from there. So, and this yeah. this this might seem like nothing to most people, although it's really clearly not nothing. One of the parents uh, at Sandy Hook, a man named Neil Heslin, father uh, of Jesse Lewis, has a refrigerator delivered, uh, and. There's two guys delivering it, and the first one kind of recognizes him and says a little something to him that's largely sympathetic. And then the second guy, who just picked up part of the conversation and heard Sandy Hook, uh, I'll let you take over the story from there. Sure. Um, so, yes, as Neil is in his house just speaking to one of the, the, the first of the two delivery men, just saying, 
you know, hey, I'm sorry about that. Um, you know, yeah, well, I lost my son at Sandy Hook. The other gent um, is passing by, you know, having delivered the refrigerator and says, oh, Sandy Hook. Yeah, um, I heard that's a hoax. Right. I think he said something like that's the thing where they're trying to take people's guns away. Uh, exactly. And and so compared to other things, I mean, Heslin himself had a uh, house fired upon. Um, I mean, shots fired at his house. Uh, um, um, Mr. Posner had, uh, uh, you know, death threats. A lot of people have had death threats. Um, One of the other parents who moved to Washington State to get away from all this, Robbie Parker, has this bizarre incident where this guy comes up to him on the streets of, I I think, Seattle and just starts verbally abusing him. These things aren't that unusual. But the refrigerator guy is interesting because he doesn't sound like he's probably a zealot, right? He's a guy who's kind of in a secondary or tertiary way absorbed something from somewhere. And as based on all, the, all that you know about that, could you say a little bit more about who that person is likely to be as opposed to some of the more unhinged people we'll be talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I thought that that incident symbolized, and and I think you're alluding to this, um, just how steeped in misinformation some of these folks are. So, you know, if you're listening to Alex Jones's InfoWars show for four hours every day on the radio or watching it on the web, you're getting, you know, theories on not just um, mass shootings uh, being staged government plots, but on everything from coronavirus to the 2020 election. And I think that that just sort of radiates outward to a point where people just sort of say, it's almost a form of like a surrender, you know, um, I give up. I think that that, you know, uh, either they start to imbibe these theories and start to believe them, or they kind of throw up their hands and say, I have no idea what's true. And, you know, that is to me, even more dangerous. And because many more people, you know, you can be a hardcore conspiracy theorist on something like Sandy Hook, but there are many more people who say, you know, there's so many of these false claims kind of crowding our media environment or our kind of, you know, atmospheric um, conversation that people just start to say, I have no idea what to believe. Um, which to me is is even more dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I think one thing that's clear in your book, it was clear to me before this because I've spent some time on this subject too, is that all of these things are kind of steps in a staircase that goes downward, downward into a very dark place. And, and people might start on one of the steps and it's very easy to move from step to step. So maybe you decide that 9-11 didn't happen the way the government said it did. And that's the first thing. And oddly enough, one of the next steps, if particularly the way the YouTube algorithm used to work, you might wind up thinking that the earth is flat or that the moon landing was faked. And, and you go down from there to President Obama's birthplace. And you you go from there to maybe QAnon and some of the stuff that, that pointed pre-QAnon to, to Pizzagate. Uh, and, and before you know it, you're at Sandy Hook. And it's these things aren't they don't seem to exist separately. Right. They're an ecosystem uh, of linked stories that that what attract people who don't believe in canonical truth. Maybe you can elaborate. Yeah, absolutely. So, 
It is like that. I think there are two different streams here. So one is, as as you alluded to, the the social media companies who are feeding you, you know, are, are algorithmically programmed to feed you more and more conspiracy theories if you show interest in one. So you know, there is a. Um, in, in my book, I profile a man named Doug McGuire, who started out, you know, looking at fairly innocuous conspiracy theories, Bigfoot and things like that. Before he knew it, an Aurora shooting theory showed up in his inbox. And then Sandy Hook, you know, and this was all on um, YouTube because he was uh, actually had been a Hollywood actor at one point and was really interested in film. So he spent a lot of time looking at people's videos on YouTube and he would he kept getting fed more and more conspiracy videos and then came into league with the Sandy Hook conspiracy theorists. Um, so that's one stream of it. The other is, you know, it, it's really individual psychology that determines, and I try to illuminate this in the book so that we can better understand, you know, that that enormous question, how could anyone have believed that that this was a staged shooting or that any of these really wild conspiracy theories are actually true. And it does go to people's, you know, sense of not only, you know, their innate, you know, kind of conspiratorial nature, their desire to believe, you know, to possess superior knowledge about something, which is a little bit of a narcissistic thing. You know, there's a certain smugness when I spoke with these conspiracy theorists, you know, that you're only guiding half the story. I'm the one who actually knows the whole story. There's deep distrust of official narratives, particularly by the government and the mainstream media. And then there's a, a kind of isolation among a lot of these folks. And that is what really drives them online. You know, they, they find each other. You know, back in the old days, it was this, the lone guy handing you a Xerox sheet in the subway or, you know, the person approaching you at your, your, your uncle at a family reunion with his JFK theories. But now all these individuals find each other and they form vast networks that are very powerful. Yeah, one thing the internet theorist Clay Shirky wrote years ago is that Facebook in particular is very, very good at, at helping people find one another. So if you have a rare disease, you can find the other people who have it and they'll form a page or a group there on Facebook. Uh, I, I don't know. I really like the comic strip Pogo. So I joined uh, a, a group about that. There aren't that many. There's a, you know, people who collect keys and people who believe kind of these very counter counterfactual versions of truth. I think maybe... You do such a great job of really trying to actually get to know some of these people. So maybe you could tell tell us about this woman in Oklahoma. Her last name is Watt. I'm blocking her first name, but yes, she's somebody. Sorry. You she's somebody that you got to you talked to, and and who I think fits the profile you just described. Somebody who maybe doesn't have much of a world particularly by the time she's through driving everybody in her life away from her, but doesn't have much of a world except for these conspiracy theories. Yeah, um, to me, she was a really fascinating profile. So Kelly Watt um, grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma area. She had a um, has a cleaning business. She's the sole employee, so she cleans mostly homes, some offices. Um, she told me, you know, I, I thought this was so striking when I first started to talk with her, you know, which is now years ago. Um, she told me that she had always wanted to be a first grade teacher. Um, the fact that this person who was telling me that I already knew had been sending these incendiary messages to 
people whose first graders had died in their classrooms. It's just beyond ironic. But she didn't finish college. She she was very disappointed in the fact that that you know she didn't receive her degree. Um, her her conspiratorial life kind of started in the 1990s when she became convinced that liberals in the Department of Education were indoctrinating Tulsa public school children and turning them into kind of compliant liberal uh, kind of zombies. Um, to me, this is also eerily reflective of what we're hearing today. You know, people coming into school board meetings convinced that CRT is being taught to children when in fact that's not part of the curriculum. So this happened in the 1990s. At the time, you know, it was the, the Tulsa newspaper that she would go to with her claims. Um, she was showing up at school board meetings, confronting officials in her children's schools. Um, and, you know, all of it kind of went nowhere because there was no social media for her to really go past, you know, the Tulsa region where she was quite infamous for this. But while she was doing this, her whole family was kind of imploding around her. Her husband struggled with depression. Um, he began drinking. He lost the family business. They lost their homes. Um, they want, she wound up moving out with her kids to a tiny apartment. Um, but she still kept doggedly pursuing this theory and, you know, trying to, you know, what she thought um, saved Tulsa school children. So Sandy Hook was something that, you know, she already possessed that mindset um, when she came across um, Sandy Hook hoax videos on Facebook and on YouTube. She really became um, a very integral part of that early group. Um, she became convinced that if she could only get the receipts or the records for cleaning up the school after the violence, that she could prove that Sandy Hook did not happen. She was convinced that if she didn't receive that, those records and that material, that the crime had never occurred. Um, and she became a really dogged um, and brazen um, Conspiracy theorist, you know, was making, by her own admission, hundreds of phone calls to officials in Newtown. Um, she was feeding theories to people who were getting them on to Infowars show, um, and she pursued that for years. Right. There's uh, one of the quotes in the book. She's kind of rattling off the names uh, of a few of uh, the the family members, uh, and it's it's almost like she knows them personally. There's a, a sort of weird paradox in the sense that she's kind of driven her own family away and isolated herself, but she knows quote unquote knows these other people so well. And and one of the things that comes out not just with her but with so many of the other people that you spoke to and and kind of analyzed is the kind of flimsy straws that they grab at. I mean, the proof of this is, yeah, well, who, where's the receipt for cleaning the school? But it's even less than that. It's like a yeah. half smile that, that a parent has uh, just as he turns to face the camera to give uh, a press conference. Or people are wearing the wrong kind of clothes. I think she was one who was kind of obsessed yeah. with that. They weren't wearing the right kind of clothes. Or it looks like cops have ordered some lunch that they're eating off the hood of a cop car uh, at the security perimeter, which would, they would never be. It's stuff like that. It isn't like there's some glaring, obvious thing that would be convincing. They, they find little things and kind of make them convincing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and while ignoring, you know, the broad stroke impossibility of this plot actually occurring. I mean, at the time that Sandy Hook happened, 
Barack Obama had just been reelected. Newtown didn't even vote for Barack Obama in the 2012 election. Um, it went, the town went for Mitt Romney. The idea that this, you know, sort of vociferous New England, um, politically, you know, uh, kind of fractious, hyper-democratic place would seamlessly coordinate with the newly reelected president to stage uh, a hoax in service of gun control, just beggars belief. So then what do they have? You know, they have this, as you just alluded to, these parents looked too old to some of them to be parents. They couldn't have been the parents of first graders. Or, you know, why, why weren't, weren't they dressed from work? Why were some of them wearing casual clothes? Oh, no one cried. I didn't see, Kelly Watt was saying, I didn't see anyone um, with tissues on the scene. So they didn't supply them with tissues. And so, and, and they weren't crying. And so this is why this never occurred. And it was just, it's just unbelievable because you're just thinking, well, I, I've seen the same photographs. Yes, they were carrying tissues. Yes, they were crying. You know, it, it was, and the kind of lack of empathy. And, and again, I go back to social media on this. It is a lot easier to say, as she said, I want the coffins to be opened. I want these children to be exhumed. I want to see Geraldo there showing us all that, that these coffins are in fact empty and that, that these children never died. It's a lot easier to post that online, even though you're posting it on a child's memorial Google Plus page, as she was. Um, it's easier to make those sort of brazen accusations and outrageous um, insults against grieving people online when you are anonymous um, and going by as she did the handle great mom, which was another irony here. Um, it's, you know, you can do that from afar. It's a lot more difficult to do it in person. And yet as these hoax theories proliferated and as these people became more and more cohesive, they did start to migrate from the virtual to the real world and begin to actually physically confront the family members of the Sandy Hook victims. All right. We're talking to Elizabeth Williamson. Uh, her book is Sandy Hook, an American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. We're going to take a quick break here. We're going to come back. We're going to introduce you to some other people, including Lenny Posner, who among the parents of Sandy Hook children was remarkable in certain ways. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. 
Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back. We're talking to Elizabeth Williamson. Uh, her book, Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy in the Battle for Truth, is really one of the important books of this year. It's obviously even more important maybe here in Connecticut uh, where we lived more closely through this process. But the problem is in no way confined to Connecticut. Uh, and um, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. But the people who emerged to torment and harass the parents uh, of, of Sandy Hook, uh, children and, and educators, um, they're from all over the country. Uh, they're not here in Connecticut. So, and one of the reasons that they're all over the country, one of the reasons that they've been radicalized in the way that they have, and there are multiple reasons, but a lot sits on the beefy shoulders of this guy. The globalists have said in their white papers, in their own UN documents, that they want to create race-specific bioweapons and other systems to depopulate the planet. A lot of this, from my sources, is that they're preparing to release bioweapons, claim that they're naturally uh, occurring, and then use that as the cover for civil emergency, societal control, crackdowns on free speech. Obama put the internet... All right, that's enough of him. Um, But uh, Elizabeth Williamson... So that's Alex Jones. Uh, and as we say, uh, it's sort of breaking news that he's just filed for Chapter 11. We could talk about that in a second. But he's obviously one of the driving forces. He starts talking about this hours after the shooting. He's, he's already speculating that this might be a faked shooting. Um, and, and rising up to challenge him, oddly enough, in this group uh, of of parents who have been bereaved in this horrible way is a man named Lenny Posner. And one of the things that makes him unusual is he had been an Alex Jones listener. I'm going to let you pick up the story and uh, talk about Lenny Posner uh, in your own way. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, So Lenny Posner, who is the father of Noah Posner, the youngest Sandy Hook victim, is really um, a hero and a central character in my book and in the story of this Sandy Hook family's effort to push back against these conspiracy theorists. So Lenny has a technological background. He's a tech expert. He's been interested in computers since the industry's infancy. And so he actually identified early on the idea that these conspiracy theories swirling around the Sandy Hook shooting that killed his son were not a one-off. In fact, they were only tangentially linked to, uh, well, not tangentially, but they, that this was not simply because Sandy Hook was seen by both sides in the gun policy debate as a watershed event. Um, it wasn't going to, the, the, the conspiracy theories were not going to fade away after the gun control debate faded away. Um, He saw this as a foundational story of how misinformation spreads in society. And as you say, he did have some backing in conspiracy theories. He used to listen to Alex Jones's InfoWars show when he was driving between tech clients. Um, And he used to kind of entertain some of the more innocuous theories, the moon landing and things like that. He thought that Jones was undeniably entertaining. Um, He got a little tired of him after a while, but he actually kind of understood the conspiratorial mind because he liked to, as a form of entertainment, entertain some of these theories. So 
he decided that, you know, this was going to be his cause. He was going to confront these conspiracy theorists and try to explain to them how painful this was, what the downstream impact on the families was. By that time, they were getting threats. They were being abused both online and in person. People were showing up at their homes, digging through their trash, um, threatening them, calling them actors in the plot. Um, and so the first thing he did was to go on to, well, one of the first things, first thing he did was actually appeal to Alex Jones to stop this because he had targeted Noah's mother, Veronique De La Rosa, with one of his theories saying that she was giving an interview to Anderson Cooper in front of a green screen instead of on the scene in Newtown after Noah's funeral. Um, so he was trying to get him to stop. Jones's, um, Jones and Company's response was, why don't you come on the show as a guest? Well, he wasn't about to be a part of the InfoWars spectacle. Um, so instead, he started to go to some of these individual conspiracy theorists who were Jones's content providers on InfoWars. And he brought to them, you know, tried to treat them with respect, answer their questions, brought to them the documents um, of Noah's life and death, his birth certificate, his autopsy report, to try and show them that this was a living, breathing little boy who lost his life at Sandy Hook. And I'm here to answer your questions and hopefully you will go away satisfied. But that didn't work. No, I think, you know, most of us who've tried to do this at all, and I sometimes will join Facebook groups that you know, believe counterfactual things, particularly COVID denier groups, and see if I can reason with people. But really, the road to misery begins with the statement, I can reason with people on the internet. It just doesn't <laughs> seem to work that yeah. way. And you describe him, or maybe he uses the term, I can't remember, but you, somebody uses the term whack-a-mole, right? At a certain point, it's like you, you, you try to address one crazy, harmful a completely wrong thing and 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 maybe you have some success and maybe you use some copyright stuff to get something taken down but then it pops up someplace else like so many of the strategies that he he used even when they were successful simply triggered a kind of reorganization uh, and, and a refabrication uh, of the thing that he knocked down with his mallet right yeah, that's a great way to put it, a reorganization and a refabrication. You you just think of like a blob that, you know, you can smash it and it reassembles and, and morphs into a different space or flows somewhere else. Um, I think that's, that's what was happening. I think it's also useful to um, maybe distinguish some of the earliest conspiracy theorists with some of the more resilient, lasting, pernicious conspiracy theorists. Um, and that's that, you know, in that first conversation, so he, Lenny Posner, again, father of Noah, youngest Sandy Hook victim, um, I document in my book how he entered um, the Sandy Hook hoax Facebook group, um, got an invitation, um, chatted with them online. This group contained hundreds of people they used to gather every night and chat in, into the wee hours of the morning, comparing their theories, building each other up, praising each other for finding new ripples in the so-called plot. And he decided to kind of go into the lion's den and say, I'm here to answer your questions and hopefully to satisfy you. Now, some of the people who had joined that group early on actually were young moms who had children around the same age as the children who died at Sandy Hook. And they were kind of there for anybody who could tell them that this horrific thing hadn't happened. 
um, Lenny sort of viewed it as a form of PTSD that they had. Those individuals, those moms, he was able to convince them. Um, they started joining him on direct message. He formed a separate group called Conspiracy Theorists Anonymous. Um, they sort of joined him there. They were satisfied um, by the answers he gave them to their questions, and they became some of his most committed volunteers in the Honor Network, which was the nonprofit that he formed to try and get some of this content taken down and to confront Jones and the other conspiracy theorists. You know, I want to go back to the image of the blob because I believe in the 1950s or so original movie, The Blob, part of the idea yeah. was that when you shot things at the blob, missiles and things like that, it just made the blob bigger and stronger. And, and that's yeah. kind of Jones for a while, right? You hit him with a lawsuit, you serve him, and what does he do? He turns it into his show that day. He's waving the paperwork around on the ear. He's maybe waving it around so you can see names and addresses and serial numbers, uh, uh, social security numbers of people that he wants attacked and doxxed. Uh, there's a way in which, at least initially, going after him, it makes the blob get bigger and stronger. That's what he feeds off of. Now, it does seem, and, and today's news would be part of this, as though the tide turned a little bit. I mean, has is it reasonable to say this is becoming a more successful strategy, trying to put out the, the dumpster fire of Alex Jones? I think we have to wait and see a little bit on that. Um, so the lawsuit, or, or well, there were at the, in the middle of 2018, um, there were four separate lawsuits filed by Sandy Hook families, defamation suits against Alex Jones um, in Texas and in Connecticut. So the families of 10 victims are suing him in these four lawsuits. Um, he stonewalled for years as this kind of made its way through the courts and they headed toward trial. They're in the discovery process, trying to unearth documents that, that shed light on how his business operates. Um, he has made a lot of money in recent years. He's got revenues of more than $50 million a year in some recent years. Um, as we know, he um, allied himself with President Trump, um, and that made him much more of a national, um, nationally known player. Um, it, you know, by the end, he was, but at the same time, he was trying not to deliver business records and depositions and things that would give the Sandy Hook families and their attorneys a real window into how his business functions and how much money he was making on spreading the Sandy Hook hoax. Um, but that did start to turn against him, as you said. So finally, at the end of last year, he was defaulted in all of those cases, which is a sweeping victory for the families. Basically, he's found liable by default because he tried to obstruct the process. So now he's embarked on another series of tactics. And today, as a matter of fact, um, the latest one, he's declared bankruptcy, saying that he owes money to a network of internal companies. The Sandy Hook family's lawyers in Texas have recently filed a suit saying, not exactly what you're doing. You know, this is their allegation that, you know, he's channeling these revenues into a series of shell LLCs, one of which is controlled by his parents and trying to hide assets. That's their allegation. So this bankruptcy declaration is kind of the latest salvo in the run up to trial, which is the first trial is supposed to begin in exactly a week. 
Um, so this is kind of the latest ripple, and we'll just see how it impacts that trial date. Yeah, I mean, Chapter 11s in general tend to be kind of a move on the chessboard as opposed to any kind of checkmate. Uh, and that's more and more. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of what this one looks like. So um, there's so many other things that I want to talk to you about. But uh, Jones himself, the portrait of Jones, and you really do a, a deep dive and you talk to a lot of people and you paint some pretty unappetizing pictures of what he's like around the office. And he doesn't he goes shirtless and eats takeout food and seems kind of gross. But, you know, ultimately, the one of the questions that's sort of interesting is. Does he believe all of this stuff? Is he mentally, psychologically unhinged? Is he a cynical huckster who's ginning up the biggest audience he can and the most motivated audience he can so he can sell all kinds of weird nutritional supplements and stuff? And I don't know. Reading your book, it feels like all of the above or at least almost any set of uh, of causes you might posit would be plausible. But how do, how do you see Jones? So that area that you raise um, really was what reminded me um, most of our former president, you know, the, the sort of people would confront Donald Trump um, about the Proud Boys, right? And he would say, you know, stand down, but stand by kind of thing. And that was what Alex Jones did for years when confronted about the Sandy Hook conspiracy theories that he was spreading. You know, uh, it, uh, on one day he'd say, I believe the shootings actually happened and that children died. And then he still maintained videos on his website that called the families actors and said he'd seen soap operas and he knows a soap opera when he sees one. So it was always kind of speaking out of both sides of his mouth. Um, and I think that that is a kind of the answer to the question of, does he really believe this stuff? Initially, he might have had some suspicions about gun control. That's something that he's talked about for years, that, you know, everything is an inside, every major mass shooting is an inside job aimed at gun control. I don't know that, you know, that I think this was more of a crowd pleasing thing. Like Donald Trump, there, Alex Jones is loath to alienate his audience. So even if he came to believe that the shooting actually happened, I don't, you know, I think we saw that, you know, he would definitely give an airing to the other side as well, so as not to lose listeners. Um, but one of his former employees told me something that I thought was really the most cogent answer to the question. It doesn't matter if he believes it or not. What does matter is that millions of his listeners do believe it. And a segment of those listeners are willing to defend those false beliefs with confrontation and with violence. Right. I, I think of two things. One of them is that some of this playbook was written by Rush Limbaugh uh, and it was the same kind of thing. And he would sometimes dance away from what he'd said and claim he was an entertainer. Um, but I always thought if he's got 17 million listeners and some portion of them, a large portion of them, believe that the Clintons had a hand in killing Vince Foster, that's really pretty upsetting and dangerous and important, and we need to take that more seriously uh, than we yeah. typically do. I also think of Vonnegut's uh, novel, Mother Night, about the, the spy who pretends to be a Nazi spokesman. And at the end, he says, we become what we pretend to be, so we should be very careful about what we pretend to be. Um, and, and that seems to be, I mean, if, if it was ever an act for Jones, I think what you're saying is, it, or, or that your source is saying, it doesn't matter now, right? 
Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, one of Lenny Posner's uh, greatest achievements and, you know, his his whole, as he describes it, you know, he wanted to rescue his son Noah's legacy from these hoaxers who, you know, he was terrified that, you know, if this kind of, and, and this was just rife in the years immediately following the shooting. So if you looked up Sandy Hook on Google, you'd get the false theories before you'd get the actual facts. And this was really terrifying to him that, you know, the, the lives and the legacies of all the Sandy Hook victims would drown in a sea of misinformation. They would just be absolutely swamped by lies. Um, so his big achievement was really to forever tar Alex Jones as kind of the super spreader of the Sandy Hook hoax. It's rare to see his name mentioned in the media or anywhere without the next sentence being who spread the lie that the Sandy Hook victims, um, you know, that 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 the that the shooting never di- happened, that the children and and the and the educators never died, and and that you know is a kind of um, way in which he pushed back. It's been years now um, since Alex Jones has actually talked about Sandy Hook, other than in the context of the lawsuits against him. Right. Um, and the deplatforming uh, of Jones also a major accomplishment and seems to Absolutely. cut his audience more yeah. or less in half. All right. We have to take a quick break. We're going to come back with more of Elizabeth Williamson. This hour is flying by too fast. You're about to hear more of the music of uh, Jimmy Green, one of the parents of one of the children who died at Sandy Hook. Little voices singing. All those precious little voices. Brightening our day. Stealing our hearts. Shaping our lives. In the blink of an eye, they're gone. Now there's just silence where those little voices used to be. Now it's up to you. It's up to me. Will you make the choice to be We're back. Time for some quick thank yous. I have an embarrassment of riches in the uh, control room today. Uh, two technical producers, uh, Kat Pastor, as usual, and Dylan Rays, uh, who's been helping out a lot over the last uh, eight or nine days here. Um, And, of course, the producer of this episode is our senior producer on the show, Lily Tyson. Our guest is Elizabeth Williamson, a feature writer for The New York Times and author of Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. So there's so many things I want to talk about, but I think I might just talk a little bit about our profession and to what degree we're challenged by all of this and also to what degree we may have some tiny little culpability in all of this. I mean, one of the things that is clear, Elizabeth, is that when truth is emerging slowly, whether it's the scientific truth about a pandemic or the kind of fog of war truth about a mass shooting, not everything, not every detail is nailed down correctly at the beginning. Sometimes scientific uh, understanding needs to grow. Sometimes the police and whoever else we're depending on, they don't really know what's happening. And and I'm just wondering, is there is are there lessons for the press? Are there lessons for journalists in all this? Yes, absolutely. But I first want to say um, thank you. And you talked about some of your coverage at the at the top. Um, thank you for your sensitive coverage of the tragedy. I did not cover the shooting itself, um, but I went back and looked at the coverage um, as part of my researching the book. And, um, you know, you're right there. And so and you understood the community. And I think that's just essential. Well, thank you. Um, and your use of the music on the show, I think, bears testimony to that as well. But um, 
Yes. I mean, this was a tremendous sort of ground-shaking tragedy. I think most Americans can remember where they were when they heard about it. It was of that magnitude. And so consequently, it obviously drew a torrent of media coverage. And, you know, um, you, you were there, so you know how many reporters and media outlets descended on Newtown from all over the world. And, um, you know, the, 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 in the, the sort of chaos of, you know, trying to learn who the victims were, how many there were, um, and, and the difficulty, and you mentioned Donald Malloy, you know, put into a really difficult spot, having to notify the families without being able to go through all the protocols of identification and making sure um, this, this contributed to a lot of chaos and some incorrect reporting in the beginning. And that frequently happens because people are trying to get news out to folks who are worrying and wondering what is happening in Newtown or anywhere else where you have a mass casualty event. Um, but there were a lot of errors and those errors wound up being fodder for conspiracy theorists who pointed to, quote, anomalies in official reports to reinforce their bogus theories about Sandy Hook. So one of the things I've been thinking a lot about while reading your book is the issue of skepticism. Um, and, and those of us who work in journalism, we use a lot of ideally healthy skepticism. I'm thinking just most recently, right before she started hosting a, week, a Sunday weekend edition, uh, Aisha Roscoe was a White House reporter. She kind of got into it with Jen Psaki. Uh, it was about the um, kind of execution uh, of an ISIS leader in Syria. Uh, and there were some civilian casualties and the White House was putting out the story that the civilian casualties, women and children, were the result of a bomb detonated by the intended um, uh, terrorist, uh, the person who was intended to be hit by the, by this strike. I hope I'm getting all these details right. I'm doing it from memory. And and Rasko, she pushed back and she said, can you prove that? Can you prove that that's really what happened? And Saki said kind of incredulously, I mean, you're asking whether you should trust me or ISIS. And Raska yeah. said, yeah, I am, because the White House isn't, hasn't always been, you know, I mean, American government in general isn't always accurate in the way that they describe these things. And to me, that's part of the press at its best, right? A healthy skepticism. Yeah, you don't get a free pass because you're a White House spokesperson and the other side is ISIS. But it's also kind of the same mechanism that these other people use to unhealthily question established truth. And I don't know, this is a huge question, and I, I don't expect you to have any kind of neat answer for it, but but there is some kind of thorniness here, right? Absolutely, yes, um, there is. It, it's, it, you know, it's not as if the government doesn't lie. I mean, I was thinking when you were speaking about Aisha's exchange with Jen Psaki about the strike, you know, the 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 unintentional killing of civilians as we left Afghanistan, you know, um, that was something that, you know, it took outside video analysis before, you know, the Pentagon actually came clean about that. So, you know, the government makes mistakes. Sometimes the government does outright lie. Sometimes, you know, historically speaking, they cover up. Um, and so we should be skeptical. Um, the, one of the things I write about in my book is, you know, the presence of so many PhD professors in the ranks of the Sandy Hook conspiracy theorists, you know, and this is where I think this highlights that sort of central thing that you that you just talked about. 
if you can question the government healthily, if you exercise healthy skepticism toward official reports, that's one thing. It's when you, you really cross over when you deny or question every single thing, and especially when you do it despite the preponderance of evidence that the official narrative is actually the true one or as close to the truth as we can get in a particular moment. That's the difference. Yes. And and I mean, I read that Mark Crispin Miller thing in the beginning. I mean, in the course of a paragraph, he questions about five or six things. It's almost a knee jerk at this point, a reflex rather than something he puts thought, thought into. Whatever they say is true. No, it's the opposite. So um, we've only got two minutes left. I can't believe that. You know, I mean, I, maybe one thing that we didn't emphasize enough is how bad a problem this is. You cite one researcher who says that by 2020, one fifth of Americans believed every school shooting was faked, not just school shootings, too. It was like a other high-profile mass shootings. I, I don't know. Do we? Is there some way to get this toothpaste back in the tube, or is this something we need to learn to live with, the way they say coronavirus will be kind of endemic? So one hopeful note I could you know, provide to end the show is the fact that, and I do cover this in the book, um, there is a lot of research being done on what drives conspiracy theorizing, the sort of psychological factors, not just the political factors that drive people to embrace these theories. And as we've seen, you know, just the fact that we are speaking about this today, and I'm so grateful for that, it, this is a very high profile. Twice in the last two weeks, Barack Obama has made high profile speeches about the existence of misinformation and disinformation in society. Uh, members of Congress on right and left are starting to tackle how this flows over social media and to try and come up with policy that will rein some of that in. So I do think, you know, in January 6th, I think helped drive this because again, you know, the same kind of theories were propelling us through the 2020 election lie and the same impulses caused people to spread and act on those, the those bogus theories. There is a collective consciousness that I do think will lead to action. And that is why the Sandy Hook families who were involved in this and who participated in the book spoke to me about this. They felt like if we could all understand as a society what they went through, it would help drive us to push for some changes. All right. We have to stop there. It's an amazing book and a very important book. Uh, Elizabeth Williamson's book is Sandy Hook, An American Tragedy and the Battle for Truth. We are going to end uh, with the musician Ingrid Michelson uh, singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow with a children's choir from Sandy Hook, some of the children who would have been uh, in school on that day. Over the rainbow.